Hello and welcome to a new year of Bite Back Chats books. We've had some great authors come on to chat to us in 2020 and 2021 is no different. Today we're welcoming economist and journalist Liam Halligan, whose book Home Truths is an in-depth look at the housing crisis and how the government is failing renters and homeowners. Welcome Liam. Liam Halligan, welcome to the virtual Bite Back podcast. Nice to be with you, Vicky. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on. And we're here to chat about your book, Home Truths, which is out in paperback very shortly. And um, I wanted to start off by asking you, what made you want to write about the housing crisis? What got you interested in housing? Because Home Truths is a book about how the UK is basically failing its its renters and also to an extent, I guess, its owners as well. Well, the book's kind of semi-autobiographical in that I grew up in a first-generation home ownership house so my father came from uh island grew up in a stone hut literally in the countryside on a farm and my mother grew up in a council house uh, so we were a first generation home ownership house and i just remember how important that was to my parents that sort of sense of security that people couldn't push them around or threaten them because they owned their own home um and a lot of my other friends, uh, were, when I grew up, lived in um, low-rise, uh, low-density uh, social housing, council housing, on the outskirts of London in a place called Kingsbury. Um, and there was a real sense of security from that decent social housing and from those um, owner-occupied homes. Uh, uh, and those among my childhood friends who did come from owner occupied homes it was nearly always first generation again they were lots of lots of immigrants um like like we were and i my view was that the housing debate in politics it so often gets um uh, ignored and yet housing is so important to so many people and if you look throughout history you know after the first world war the housing debate was absolutely massive uh, the homes fit for heroes then after the second world war it was really the making of Harold Macmillan and the Conservative Party after Clem Attlee built lots of social housing. Then the Tories came along uh, and built a lot more homes that became owner-occupied. And yet, if you look at the owner-occupying figures, they've been plummeting um, basically since the turn of the century uh, under Brown and Blair and then under Major and Cameron. And that struck me as really important, seeing as we're meant to be a nation of homeowners, and yet we aren't anymore. Home ownership in the UK is below the EU average, which is pretty striking, uh, certainly for people of my generation. And of course, you know, I've got children and they're, they're coming into adulthood. And that weighed on my mind, too, because it's so difficult now for kids to get a foot on the housing ladder. And also at the same time, uh, we're building hardly any council houses. Social housing is at such shortage and you're getting this beds in sheds pandemic with lots of people you know living in gardens frankly in unsanitary unsafe situations so as somebody who's interested in politics and public policy and somebody for whom uh, housing was really important when i was a kid and, and in my sort of formation uh, as, as a person it seemed obvious to me to write a book about housing and yet the books about housing that i read they were very, very technical, very nerdy. Or you had people in politics writing about housing who clearly knew, knew nothing about housing. So <laughs> it struck it struck me, Vicky, that um, there were, 
everybody that knew anything about housing didn't understand the big political picture and everybody who understood the big political picture didn't actually know anything about housing. So with Biteback's help, uh, I wrote Home Truths, uh, which is meant to fill that gap. It's a it's a book about the house building industry in particular and, and the situation in, in the shortage of homes in the UK set in an international context that's meant to pass muster with the real policy nerds and policy experts. And it's had some great feedback from academics and people like Shelter, you know, real experts on housing, but it's also meant to be accessible to the general reader, particularly generation rent and the political classes too. That's what I set out to do. Uh, and it's had some great reviews and I'm delighted it now it's out in paperback. Yeah, it's really interesting um, reading your book. I was struck by the fact that housing it is not talked about enough and as someone who is renting at the moment and someone who hopes to one day buy a house like you just get a sense of how impossible it is to actually even think about buying a house because it's so expensive especially if you live in cities and you make it very clear in the book that the UK's housing market is effectively broken um, so can you give us a bit of an overview about how that happens and what kind of situation we're in now? Sure. I mean, for your generation, Vicky, if I may say so, it, it is really, really difficult. I mean, pre-COVID, um, half of all first-time buyers had to rely on the bank of mum and dad, rising to two-thirds in London and the southeast. And of course, for a lot of people who want to make it in the professions, you know, they feel rightly or wrongly they have to spend some time in London and the southeast. Uh, and so, lots of people haven't got scope to rely on their family to help them buy a home which is completely regressive. You know, the housing market, certainly for my parents' generation and for my generation too, it was a source of sort of social mobility and progress. Uh, but now it's become a form of sort of social stymieing and rancor, a social immobility where only people from relatively wealthy homes can get on that housing ladder, which then means they're paying their own mortgage off rather than someone else's mortgage in rent. And I'm sure that's a subject close to your heart and mm. close to the heart of many of the of the young adults who've who I've spoken to for the book and who have written to me uh, since uh, people like the Yimbis, uh, the Yes in My Backyard campaign group, and the basic problem is that we're simply not building enough homes. We're not building enough homes for social housing. Let's just park that issue. I'm sure we'll come back to it because that's a crucial part of the book as well. But when it comes to housing for sale. Um, it's, we've built two to three million too few homes over the last wow. 25 to 30 years. And that's the main reason why house price growth has been so huge in the UK compared to practically any other country in the world. And that's why when I bought my first property, don't shoot, uh, it, you know, in the mid 90s, uh, the average house in the UK was three to four times the average income the average annual income and now it's more like eight to nine times the average income and in the kind of places where you might want to buy you know not particularly good parts of london but in london because <laughs> that's where your where your work is then the average house can be 10 to 12 to 15 times average annual income and even more of course in some not even very exclusive postcodes but more convenient postcodes and in that sense, the market is broken. There's huge demand and supply is not responding to meet that demand to bring about a reasonable level of pricing 
reasonable affordability as there was when I bought my first home. And that's because the supply side of the housing industry, the house builders, they are now what we call in economics an oligopoly. There's far too few of them and they can control the rates at which housing comes to the market in order to keep prices artificially high. On top of that, you've got a planning system that's very restrictive, uh, which means it's sometimes hard to get hold of land at reasonable prices with planning permission. But a key kind of analytical strand in Home Truth, as, as you'll know, and this really stemmed from a, a series of documentaries I made for Channel 4 on house building and the housing market more generally, is that the number of planning permissions outstanding has now rocketed. There's over a million planning permissions outstanding in the UK. That is, there are over a million units of housing, not extensions, but units of housing, be they apartments or, 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 or houses, that could now be built that aren't being built because house builders, particularly the big house builders, are sitting on those planning permissions. The big house builders, they get those planning permissions off the councils. Uh, the councils then don't give the planning permissions to smaller builders, and the big house builders then sit on those planning permissions in order to drip feed supply to the market. This is completely uh, undeniable analysis. You'll see in my book, I've got incredible interviews with people like the late Tony Pidgeley, who's one of the big house builders in this country, who set up Barclays Homes, um, who acknowledges that this happens. You've got interviews with the likes of Sajid Javid, who at the time was the housing secretary. Uh, he's now the former chancellor and he's written a, a pretty punchy preface to the paperback edition of Home Truths. You know, what I'm saying cannot be dismissed as kind of mad uh, conspiracy theory analysis. This is contrived scarcity, controlled supply, as the big house builders call it in their annual reports. This is why shares of the big house builders have rocketed because, and it, you know, the, the CEOs of those companies, they're not doing anything illegal, Your Honor. They're just working within the system as it is, but the system is, is set up to help them. There's lots of uh, closeness between the big house builders and the politicians, particularly the Conservative Party, I may say so. Uh, and so we basically have a sort of the, the, the grip of vested interests on this house building industry. You just work really hard to come up with a system that was um, that harmed ordinary consumers more than the one that we currently have, I'm afraid. Yeah, and it's fascinating reading about how the housing market is, is rigged basically in favour of these big property developers and effectively landowners as well, I suppose, even to the extent where there are these shell companies that ostensibly are housing developers, but don't build houses. They just invest in the land and keep hold of them. Yeah, they're called land work. agents. Mm -hmm. um, and a very high proportion of the house, a very high proportion of the planning permissions that are granted are granted to firms that never build houses. They're companies who who offer um, deals to farmers. They option the land of farmers. So you know, they pay farmers a, a small annual income um, fee. And then when they finally get planning permission on that farmer's land, they take a huge chunk of the upside. And, and you, let's be completely clear. When you have arable land and then it gets residential planning permission, the value of that land can go up. Now, it doesn't go up like twice or three times or 10 times or 50 times, the value of that land 
arable land that then becomes um, has planning permission for residential uh, property can often go up 100, 200, wow. 300 fold massive uh, planning uplift, we call it. And again, planning uplift is absolutely at the center of home truths. And the main kind of policy um, conclusions and recommendations in a book that's full, you know, that's the whole point of the book, right? It's to try and force government to do certain things. The main policy conclusions revolve around the use of that planning uplift because under the current law, it's like a feudal system. And it's you know, the UK is an outlier internationally in places like Australia, big parts of Europe, particularly Germany, um, Singapore, um, uh, in parts of the States as well. You have what's called shared uplift. So that massive uplift um, uh, when somebody is granted plan permission on arable land, uh, that massive uplift is the fact that it is so massive in the UK is indicative of the fact that there's such pent up demand for housing. Um, but in many other countries, that uplift is shared between the state and the landowner. I'm not talking about you know, expropriating the landowner. I'm just saying that huge, huge unearned gain uh, should be shared. Uh, and if it was shared, then a lot of the speculative pressure would go out of the market for, for land uh, the money could then accrue to the local authority that could then use that money to build the schools, hospitals, roads, and other infrastructure that would make local house building more popular because, you know, people don't like local house building because, oh, my kid can't get a place in the school and the hospital's already crowded. And uh, But if you build the infrastructure based on the gains from the planning uplift, which happens in many, many other parts of the world, then house building locally would become more popular. You know, a lot of young people, a lot of young families, a lot of grandparents who want their kids to live near them, all those things would then feed into the fraught local politics of planning. But in particular, also the house building market could get hold of land that's relatively less expensive because at the moment, so much of the price of land is that pent up speculation from the massive planning uplift so much so vicky that back in the 50s and 60s when you did have more shared uplift um the price of land made up just five percent of the total cost of a house to the ultimate house buyer now it's more like 60 or 70 percent so when you buy a house 60 or 70 percent of the money you're paying of the mortgage that you're shouldering from working day in, day out for 25 years is the price of the land, right? Now, the fact that land is such a huge slug of the price of a new house in a country where less than 2% of the land is covered with residential property. Yes, it's 2%. It's in the book. It's fully referenced. Is crazy. It's completely crazy. And it stems from the fact that we have in the UK this pretty feudal system whereby the whole of the planning gain, the whole of the planning uplift goes to the landowner and or the developer who has optioned the land. And that is the main reason. It's the main explanatory variable. And again, that's, I've cited untold evidence in the book. This is unanswerably true. Why housing is so expensive in the UK. And that there's a kind of feedback loop because land is so expensive because all the uplift is shared. There's huge speculation. 
we are then you know there's not much money left then to build the actual house which is why we're building the smallest homes in the uk now since the 1920s we're building the smallest homes in europe of any country um you know look at the size of the sitting room in these new build houses that you bought. you can't even put a sofa in them we're building pokey boxy ugly low quality housing because so much of the price of the house is the land and these elevated land prices stem from the fact that the whole of the uplift accrues to the landowner slash the developer huge speculative pressure that planning gain needs to be shared the market for land needs to become a lot less speculative and that shared planning gain can then go into the building of local infrastructure making house building politically less fraught and more popular it's a very bold move to make but it would basically bring the uk into line with most other developed countries in the world yeah and it seems that um housing at the moment above anything is a profits game and so things like social housing would invariably fall by the wayside because obviously social housing isn't as profitable as, for instance, building a four bed for a wealthy family to move into. So how has the housing crisis impacted social housing in the UK? Well, I, I don't mind profits. Profits make the world go round. You know, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. Um, but when you've got, um, you know, massive oligopolistic companies that control a huge slice of the house building industry our top 10 house builders control about 70 percent of the market and they're punting out very very low quality housing and ripping off um young first-time buyers and buyers of of new build housing i mean there's really heartbreaking stories in home truths new build nightmares is chapter seven i seem to remember where you know these big uh, listed house builders are really um, abusing their customers and they seem almost impervious to uh, any proper regulatory controls because you know frankly the politicians are scared to regulate them because they're reliant on them to build houses and they're you know coining huge amounts of campaign donations i mean that's that's the that's the reality so i don't mind profits and i don't mind capitalism at, at all but our house building industry at the moment is not capitalism it's crony capitalism and so i want a market that operates properly not least because this is the most important thing most people will ever buy in their lives and there's a tremendous uh, interview in home truths with um a, a very reputable surveyor um uh, and and he says on the record that there's you know when you're buying a new build home for instance uh, and you know, help to buy this government scheme has pumped up the price of new build homes. Enormous, again, super normal profit margins. Uh, this uh, surveyor says you have more protection when you buy a toaster than when you buy a new build home. You have these bigger uh, property developers who basically um, uh, forbid their buyers from doing their own surveys on these new build homes so buyers are being forced into these new build homes in a hurry and then and the contract that they sign often they're inexperienced people means they can't even do their own home buyer survey before they sign the acceptance contract i mean crikey you wouldn't buy a car without driving it around the block right or maybe getting a mechanic to look over it and yet these house builders are so powerful 
and the politicians are such so quaking in their boots to such an extent that they don't even by law um, uh, require house builders to allow um, by rights new build uh, home buyers to conduct their own home buyers survey so this is a major major problem this is an oligopoly this isn't capitalism it's crony capitalism mm -hmm. now on the social house housing side there's almost you know we need social housing right let me say that out in the open this is not something that should be stigmatized you know when social housing really first came to the fore after the first world war with the homes bit fit for heroes under lloyd george and christopher addison and i write there's quite a lot of history in home truths i write about that period it's fascinating to research it uh, and all the rest of it and then the second big wave of house building after the second world war more private sector but still lots of social housing too that happened because in both cases that land was relatively available um, and particularly after the second world war planning permission was relatively easily given for house building there were regulations it wasn't wildcat by any means and you know if you look at some of the housing the post-war council housing it's still very very desirable to this day it's what people want they don't want the housing the social housing of the tower blocks of the 60s and 70s the tower blocks of the 60s and 70s came out came came about because in 1961 um the tories changed the law they reverted back to a system where planning uplift was no longer shared it went all went back to the uh landowner or the developer and that was really the conservative party reverting to type in a way uh, and falling prey to those traditional vested interests and that's when the price of land for residential purposes really rocketed so local authorities if they wanted to build social housing they had to build you know towers because they couldn't afford to buy land um the way they could in the 40s and the 50s and so that's why the book calls for a reversal of that 1961 Land Compensation Act, which sounds technical, but it's something that shelters called for. It's something that um, two parliamentary committees now, since Home Truths was published, have called for uh, the Commons Community Select Committee, the House Lords Economic Affairs Select Committee. Both those committees read Home Truths closely, and I was you know, privileged to give uh, and pleased to give evidence at those committees. You've got think tanks on the center right calling for a reversal of the land compensation act as well this is now now a cross-party point of view the government has to grab it uh, and once you reverse the land compensation Act of 1961 you can then get local authorities building on relatively affordable land so hopefully they can build a lower density um, low-rise uh, social housing the way the situation is now, though, as well as really expensive land, um, and again, this is completely crazy, and I didn't realise this till I sort of deeply researched the book, is that when a local authority goes through all the hassle and aggro of building um, uh, social housing, or the, or the housing association or, uh, does so on their behalf, that social housing, once you've lived in that for a few years, you then have the right to buy, and when you buy your council house, as it were. The, the local authority, uh, you buy it for a below market rent. So the replacement cost of it is much higher for the local authority if they want if they want to replace it. But um, only a fifth of that money then goes to the local authority. Four fifths of it reverse back to the treasury. So why would a local authority build houses? Because you go through all the aggro, then someone buys it, and then you lose all the money. It goes back to the treasury. 
And so the incentives are completely misaligned. So everybody keeps saying, oh, we need more social housing. And I'll look at, you know, Grenfell was obviously a case in point, And there's a whole chapter on Grenfell in the book in that Grenfell, though it was mixed ownership, it was originally a social housing tower and maybe it was um, mismanaged. Certainly um, uh, there, there were huge lessons to learn on the cladding. That, that's obvious. And I, I deal with that in Home Truths. But my point is that after Grenfell, there's this big kind of sense of, oh, we've got to build more social housing. There's always going to be, you know, a fifth or so of the workforce that doesn't earn enough uh, for the open market for rent uh, or to buy their own home. Uh, they still need housing, obviously, better than just paying a private landlord housing benefit to house them, better to have social housing. That makes sense to me. You know, move the housing benefit bills, 25 billion quid a year. Right? It's huge amounts of money. Let's shift that housing subsidy from benefits to bricks and build more decent quality social housing. But again, the system is broken. The, 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 the incentives aren't just um, unaligned to encourage more social house building, Vicky. They're completely misaligned. It's almost as if they've, again, been designed to prevent social house building. Um, and that's crazy because unless we have a significant number of new social houses built every year, we're never going to build enough houses. You need that social housing building sector to kind of keep the private sector under pressure to, to get up to the 250,000 or so homes a year that our demography suggests we need to build. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's heartening to hear how politicians are finally, they finally seem to be taking this on board and reading your book and recognising the scale of the problem they face. And we might have touched on this briefly before, but why do you think that politicians have until now been so reluctant to tackle this issue? Well, I think there are politicians, there are politicians. There have always been backbenchers that have taken a big interest in this um, subject. And, you know, the acknowledgements of my book are filled with names of, of, you know, people running select committees, appearing on select committees, who get really, really interested. And they're not, you know, they're from right across the political spectrum. I mean, R Richard Bacon, Tory MP in Norfolk, he's an absolute housing market nut. He knows huge <laughs> amounts about house building and he's constantly plugging away. Uh, Clive Betts on the Labour side, the former chairman of Sheffield Council, runs the Community Select Committee, Siobhan Madonna for Labour. I mean, you've got some real stalwarts, uh, Lord Shipley, John Shipley and the Lords for the Lib Dems. They've campaigned on more house building you know, forever and a day. But when people get into ministerial office, it's like housing, it's like a step along the ladder to a better job. You know, I mean, when I wrote Home Truths, we'd had 20 house ministers in the previous 21 years, and it's quite a complex area. So you get your head around it and then, and then you're moved. So I think the, the main problem is, as I describe in the book, isn't the fact that, you know, politicians aren't interested many politicians are really interested and their constituents you know it always comes up on the doorstep and in and in their mail bags and so on if you can have a sort of virtual mail bag these days um but for high politics you know ministerial office what you have you seem to have this kind of iron triangle of vested interests which means that more houses don't get built or enough houses don't get built to, so prices can moderate not i don't want a house price crash of course i want prices to moderate the growth of house prices to moderate so gradually incomes catch up and so frankly 
you know your generation my kids generation can can buy homes um, mm. um and the iron triangle of vested interests at one side of the triangle you've got um existing homeowners you know they say they want more houses being built but they often don't really i mean nimbyism is a sort of you know national religion in this country and yet the green belt now as i said two percent of the whole land mass is covered with residential property and that includes gardens and the green belt is 13 percent of the land mass of england 13 percent, and far from being concreted over right that's absolute rubbish it's more than twice as big as it was since 1979 right no one's talking about building on national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty and no one's saying that the green belt isn't important but it's 140 percent bigger now than it was in 1979 right even though we've got you know 25 percent more people this is just completely unsustainable and i have to say you know it's generally the lib dems who in local council situations ramp up the scale of the green belt constantly adding to the green belt it's like an ethnic cleansing mechanism for nice people in the home counties and their equivalent posh suburbs in the northwest and the northeast you know they don't want other people living near them it's absolutely outrageous we need more house building near to where people want to live now it may be post-covid that there's a bit of re release there because people can live slightly further away but that's only the professional classes really it's only when you can do your job on zoom like we are now um but when you do manual work, you need to live often near the population centers. So that's one side of the Iron Triangle of vested interests who don't really want more house building, even though they say they do, existing homeowners. The other side, uh, another side of the Iron Triangle of vested interests are the developers. And those developers, for reasons we've described, want that contrived scarcity. And they want that contrived scarcity to be maintained. They don't want more regulations um, um, changing. Uh, they don't want um, small and medium-sized enterprises coming in and building homes. They want to keep the market restricted and rigged. And in order to make sure that happens, they bung copious amounts of money into our political system every year, second only to the financial services industry in terms of campaign donations. And the third and final triangle uh, side of the Iron Triangle of vested interests are the banks. And the banks don't want more house building because... 60 to 70 percent of all loans in this country are linked to property uh, and so you constantly have the banks whispering in the in ear of treasury ministers saying don't build more houses there'll be a banking collapse utter rubbish i'm not talking about building a million homes in one year i'm talking about a gradual moderate shift so we actually build homes that people want to buy so there isn't a constant grinding increase in property prices you know, every 10 years leads to some kind of financial collapse or, or instability because massively over-levered, over-mortgaged people are desperately trying to buy a very modest home where they can raise their family. The system, I'm afraid, and I speak, you know, as a card-carrying economist, a former fund manager, I absolutely believe in capitalism to my fingertips, right? And I'm saying to you, the system is completely rapacious and rigged and it's giving capitalism a bad name and people that believe in you know free markets and believe in capitalism need to understand that unless we reform our house building industry unless people have a fair crack of the whip 
like my working class parents did to better themselves, to work hard, to save, to buy their own home that gives, the, you know, freeing their families from literally generations of, of landlords exploiting them and, and hard labor. Unless we give people that capability and that chance, then politics will get a lot more radical and it's going to go through rent controls. It's going to go through more nationalizations. You know, how can people support capitalism if they don't have any capital? And for most people, the main capital in their lives, certainly for my generation, is their home. And as long as they've got a home and they can pay off the mortgage, they have an asset that they then hold that can give them some dignity, some options, some flexibility in later life. But I'm afraid the generation coming through now and the generation coming through after that, they haven't got a hope of getting on this property ladder. And that's a major problem. And um, I mean, there's so many things that I'd like to ask about that we just don't have time to talk about. But let's just finish off by asking you uh, if you were magically made prime minister tomorrow, what Only is a matter one... of time. <laughs> exactly. It's, 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 it's coming. Uh, what is one policy that you would enact to help start fixing the housing crisis? Well, I think the main thing that needs to happen, and this is quite nerdy, but what we need is a competition and markets authority inquiry into the house building industry, because it is now an oligopoly. I mean, some people, I'm not saying this and I'm not arguing it and the house builders will deny it. Um, but some people say, uh, including former ministers said to me um, as I was researching the book, that our house building industry is now a cartel. And again, the house builders deny that. Uh, I'm not asserting that. I'm just saying uh, as a journalist of repute, that um, senior people with senior hands-on experience in government uh, and our regulatory bodies as well have told me that in their view, they think the house building industry is a cartel. So a deeply restrictive practices. And we haven't had a full competition commission inquiry. It's now the Competition and Markets Authority. It used to be called the Office of Fair Trading. We haven't had an inquiry into our house building industry, really understanding the extent to which proper competition and the operation of markets is being deliberately thwarted since before the, the layman collapse. It was 2007, 2008. Back then, that inquiry concluded that the house building industry was, was concentrated. Uh, and if it got any more concentrated, that would be a major problem. Well, you know, back then, the smallest builders built a third of the houses. Um, uh, and between them, the smaller, medium-sized builders built two-thirds of the houses. Yeah. Now between them, they build about a fifth of the houses. And the massive volume builders, they're building a four-fifths of the houses. So it is a major problem. I want that competition and markets authority inquiry. Uh, and indeed, that's what Sajid Javid, former chancellor, former housing secretary, calls for in the preface to my book. Now, if he's saying it, and I'm saying it, I mean, between us, we've got quite a lot of experience mm. in this um, arena. Um, we're not mad left-wing people by any means. I mean, he could easily lead the Conservative Party and actually be Prime Minister one day. Um, but he was gracious enough when I was uh, researching Home Truths to follow my research very carefully, to read the book closely. And I'm delighted that he agreed to pen the preface to the book. Uh, and in the preface to that book, uh, the paperback edition out now, he does call 
the former chancellor for a full competition and markets authority inquiry into our house building industry. And I think that would kickstart a genuine debate uh, and show the house builders crucially that the government is serious about shaking up the industry, making it work properly. Yes, decent profits, but you know, a 30% profit margin on house building, which is basically a Victorian technology is too much. You know, there should be a healthy profit margin for people to turn a decent profit and a decent living to pay shareholders. But the rates of return on capital in our house building industry at the top end are pointing to super normal profits, to restrictive practices, to a lack of competition. And in the end, it's competition that will fix our house building industry. And that's what we need to make happen. Excellent. Well, I, I think we'll have to end it there. Liam, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Thanks to you, Vicky, and thanks to everyone at Biteback for uh, helping me to publish Home Truths. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to another Biteback podcast. If hearing Liam's insights has whetted your appetite, then why not head to bitebackpublishing.com and pick up your paperback of Home Truths? It's out now and offers a fully updated look at the housing crisis, including how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting it, as well as a whole load of stuff that we didn't manage to cover in the podcast itself. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.